Go ahead and take out your Bibles this morning. Let's look at the book of Romans. The book of Romans. As we continue working our way verse by verse through chapter 5. And now we are in the second part of that chapter, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. And that will, we, we began those verses last week. Those verses will be our focus throughout the month of February. And so I want to read those together, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. As always, if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to grab one from the seats in front of you. Uh, we want to make sure that you can see these verses that we're looking at. Uh, they are the very Word of God. And they are worthy of our attention and our study. And Christ has much blessing for us in the words of these pages. And so I want to begin reading Romans 5. And we're going to read verses 12 through 21. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Did you hear that? The righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, here is the message of the Gospel. God treated His righteous Son as if He was a terrible sinner and treats terrible sinners as though he, as though they, were his righteous and obedient son. Our sins as Christians imputed to Christ, placed on Christ at the cross. 
Christ's righteousness accomplished over 33 years. Righteousness in obedience to the point of death taken and applied to our account the moment we believe. Our F's placed on Jesus' report card at the cross and He got the punishment we deserved. His A's placed on our report card the moment we believe and God treats us as though we had done it. And we get the blessings and the rewards. Folks, this is awesome for us. This is, this is incredibly encouraging. We praise God for this mystery of the gospel. But how can it be? How can God justly punish the righteous one and justly bless sinners? How can God be a holy God? And do this awesome thing called imputation. Well, that's the mystery that Paul is unfolding for us in these verses. Now, these verses are important. These verses are theologically dense. If you were not with us last Sunday, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to last week's message because... Um, each one of these messages over these verses really builds upon the next, and I won't have time to go back and rehearse everything we did the week before. So, so if you miss a message in these, in these verses, it's really important that you go back and you hear it and you understand where we are. Now, Paul begins to explain this glorious gospel truth of imputation in verse 12, right? Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Last week, we, we left off with two suggestions concerning this verse 12. And my first suggestion, which we did talk about last week, was that the death that Paul mentions in verse 12 is not primarily physical death, but spiritual death. That we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. All mankind, since the sin of Adam, does not love God nor want God, as Paul has already taught over and over in the book of Romans. What's more, we are born sinners. We are born under the condemnation of God. Physical death points to this. People die physically because our bodies are cursed, and that is a reminder to us that our souls are cursed. Our souls are dead spiritually. And it's only through Jesus Christ and the new birth and the gift of the Holy Spirit that we can become alive again. But apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, human beings are the living dead. We move around we have physical lives, but we are dead to God. And then I made a second suggestion about verse 12, and that's where we want to pick up this morning. My second suggestion, and this is huge, is that the last two words of the verse, all sinned, refers not to the various sins that you and I commit during our lifetimes but it refers to the one sin of Adam. That when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Paul is explaining how this spiritual death, along with physical death, but mainly spiritual death, came upon the human race. 
And Paul's answer is that Adam sinned, and therefore the wages of sin is what? Death. Adam sinned, and therefore Adam died, and all humanity also dies, because when Adam sinned, we all sin. He doesn't say we all sin present tense. He says we all sinned past tense. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. Now that seems like a a radical thing to say, especially in our day. I mean, is Paul suggesting that God holds all humanity responsible for the sin of one guy? Is is Paul really saying that God has punished the entire human race with death because one fella broke his law? Is God really saying that? The answer is yes. That's exactly what he's saying. And we know that's what he's saying because he's going to say it over and over and over again in the next several verses. So let me show you. Look at the middle of verse 15. Middle of verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass, right? Now, Paul says if at the beginning of that clause, but as we will see when we get there, it is clear from the context that Paul is saying this is true. Many did die through one man's trespass. Look at the middle of verse 16. Middle of verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Condemnation on who? Just on Adam? No. As we'll see when we get there, it is clear from the context he's speaking of the whole human race. One sin of Adam brought death on the whole human race. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for who? All men. Is that not clear? Church, people have been stumbling over this teaching for centuries, but they have not stumbled over it because Paul was unclear. Paul says this very plainly. The reason people stumble over this teaching of of original sin or really original guilt in Adam is because they don't want to believe it. It isn't that the Bible isn't clear about it. It is. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. All right, so you hear that? By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You and I were sinners before we were even born. We became sinners when Adam disobeyed God. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. The natural person, apart from Jesus intervening, is rotten at the core. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can know it? This is why sin comes so natural to us. Sin is a part of who we are. It is integral to our nature. We are not inherently good. We are inherently evil at heart. David, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, from my very conception From the moment that I existed in history, sin was a part of who I am. 
Human nature, human beings by nature are enslaved to sin. We cannot stop sinning. And if you don't believe me, try it. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Evil is as much a part of human beings as spots are to leopards or black skin to an African. It's a part of who we are. How did this happen? How did death, how did spiritual death come to the human race? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's what Paul's teaching here. Now, how does this connection work? How is it that you and I are so intimately connected with Adam that when he sinned, we sinned? How does this connection between you and Adam work? Well, one view that has a very rich history in Christianity is that it is our biological connection to Adam that's at play here. It's because we are physically, genetically, biologically connected to Adam that God can hold us accountable for the sin of him as our father. John MacArthur, a man I love and respect greatly, a man who's had a, a, a big impression on my life, uh, he's one who has defended this view of the biological connection to Adam as being what's mainly at view here. Here's what he says. He says, in the garden, Adam was mankind. He was all the mankind there was along with Eve. And once the sin principle came to dwell in him, he would then pass it on to all of his procreation. Just as all of Adam's offspring have human characteristics like eyes and ears and hands and feet and nose and mouth and internal organs, so they will also have the sin principle. It is passed on to Adam's progeny. The world of mankind then became corrupted. MacArthur says, John Donne must have been musing about this reality when he wrote, No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a piece of the main. And then he said, Any man's death diminishes me. Because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. You are not an island. You cannot be isolated. You cannot be separated. Adam was acting in solidarity with the whole human race. MacArthur goes on. Adam had mankind in his loins. There was the seed of humanity that would bring forth every human life. And so when he was polluted, so was everything that would ever come out of his loins and produce a polluted race. That's the biological view. It's our biological genetic connection to Adam that caused us to be held accountable for his sin, his death. It's now our sin and our death. Now, I don't just disregard that view. Um, because it's held by many godly men, and I think there's some aspects of truth to it. I do want to suggest that that's not mainly the view that Paul has, has here. That he's not saying that it is our biological connection to Adam that matters most, but that it is our federal connection to Adam. Everybody say federal. 
Thank you. That was good. Federal connection to Adam. The idea is that as Adam lived before God in the garden, he did so as the legal representative of the human race. When Adam entered into a covenant with God, Adam entered that covenant on behalf of the entire human race. And thus, when Adam broke the covenant with God, he broke the covenant not as an independent person, but as the representative of you and me and every human being. He was our covenantal head. Now, the instinct of many people is to just hate this idea. They do not like the fact that God chose for one man to represent all of us in the garden in this covenant. Right? We, we, our instinct is to want to be autonomous. I want to stand on my own two feet. I want to be independent. I want to represent myself. Don't choose a representative for me, God. Let me represent myself. I'm going to try and obtain salvation on my own. I certainly don't want to be held responsible for the guilt of somebody else. But God is not treating us unreasonably here. In fact, as much as we often act as though we want to be treated as autonomous, independent people, this isn't really the way the world usually works. Let me give you one illustration I read this week that I think explains this. A father inherits a great deal of money from his father. But then he wastes it all away and has none left over for his children. How does society work? Do we declare that those children have been robbed of their inheritance? Do we go as a society and find a way to give them that money back? No. Our society says that if your father lost your inheritance, you have no inheritance. The inheritance is gone. If your father wasted the money, it is now your loss as well as his. Another illustration of this that you read sometimes is that of our generational debt, something we know a lot about here in the United States. Here in the United States, every one of us is now in debt for a great deal of money that we owe to China and to a lot of other people. One generation spends a great deal of money that they don't have, and the next generation is left with the debt. Now, you could go to the White House or go to Congress and say, I, I would like to petition as an American citizen, I don't want the debt. I don't, I don't want to have any part of that debt. But the only way you can be exempted from the debt that our, the generation above us and indeed our own generation has brought upon us is if you cease to be an American citizen. You have to renounce your American citizenship to lose that debt. In other words, one generation sins, the next generation suffers consequences. That's how the world works. Here's an illustration of federal headship that uh, I've used before. I think it comes very close to the kind of relationship we have with Adam. At the end of World War I, the end of World War I, when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Treaty of Versailles to make peace with Germany, was it just Woodrow Wilson that was now at peace with Germany? It was the entire group of people that he represented, namely the United States and every citizen, right? It was all of those people that he stood for. 
In that moment, when Woodrow Wilson signed the Treaty of Versailles, he stood as the federal head of our nation. Well, in the same way, in the garden, when Adam received the covenant of works, it was not just Adam who received it. It was all humanity. Remember, the name Adam means man, right? He stood for man, male and female. Adam stood for man in this covenant before God. Now, what is this covenant, right? Sometimes called the covenant of works. What, what is this? Well, to see what's, what's going on here in Paul's mind, we need to go back and, and see this covenant in which Adam sinned and we all sinned. Adam died and we all died. In fact, almost everything Paul was saying here in this part of Romans 5 is based on what happened in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So go back to Genesis 2 and let's remind ourselves real quickly what this sin was that caused Good human beings. Remember, in the beginning, God created us good. And through this one sin, spiritual death, physical death, fell on all humanity. What was this terrible sin? What was this covenant of works? Look at Genesis 2 and look at verse 16 and 17. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now there's, there's no word covenant here. But this is a covenant. This is God revealing himself to man and making a promise about how he is going to relate to man. If Adam obeys, God will reward him with blessing. If man disobeys, God will relate to him with the judgment of death. And it's interesting that later in the Bible, Hosea 6, 7, Isaiah 24, 4 through 5, they both look back on Adam's sin in Genesis 3 and says it was the breaking of a covenant. This covenant established here, often called the covenant of works. What does the Bible teach about this covenant? Well, first of all, see that it was divinely imposed. It was divinely imposed. It wasn't as if God sat down with Adam at a bargaining table, right? And they began to, to haggle over the terms of this covenant, no? And, and neither does, does Adam come to God and say, God, let me tell you how our relationship is going to be. No, God comes to Adam. The potter comes to the pot and says, this is what our relationship will be like. And Adam is immediately bound by what God declares. If he obeys God, he will be forever blessed beyond his wildest imagination. But if he disobeys against the holy, holy, holy God who has given him so much, then he will reap the punishment of death. God does not ask Adam if this is okay with him. Right? Today there are many who think they can, they can stipulate the terms of their relationship with God. Maybe you, you think that way, right? Maybe you've been telling God, look, here's what I've done, therefore you must accept me, right? Or, or I've been praying for so long, you must answer me now. Or, or God, let me tell you how this works. If I do this, you, you bless. We do not stipulate the terms of our relationship to God. He stipulates the terms of his relationship to us. Now, when we look at the terms of the covenant that God placed on Adam, these were wonderful terms. 
We've seen this before. God was not being unkind to Adam. He gave him everything in the garden. He gave him paradise. And he said, go, eat, enjoy it, right? Uh, Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Don't just jump to verse 17 and miss that. Adam, enjoy the gifts that I'm giving to you. There's a force to this verse. The ESV uses the word surely to try and and, and get the idea across. There's some force to this. God is telling Adam, go, enjoy, delight in my good gifts to you. God wants him to eat of the fruit of the trees. God wants him to drink from the river. God wants him to play with the animals. God wants him to enjoy holy work in the garden. God wants him to enjoy fellowship with his wife. All the earth was glorious at this time, but the garden was particularly beautiful, pleasing to the eyes, filled with good things. And so God was being incredibly gracious to Adam. And then he said, verse 17, right? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed in the garden simply to remind Adam that he was not God. God alone has full knowledge of good and evil. God alone is infinitely wise. It is good to have wisdom. It is good to desire wisdom. But the Bible tells us that we are to gain our knowledge of good and evil by fearing God, by looking to God. We are to trust God. We are to look to God. We are to learn from God. And yet this tree was placed in the garden as a test. Would Adam trust God to guide him and teach him? Would he be satisfied with the blessings God had given him? Or would he try and do a runaround God to become something in his own way, in his own time? Would he try and make himself wise apart from God? Would Adam try and make himself like God apart from God? Now, friends, we who are Christians are being taught by the Spirit to learn good from evil. And in heaven, we will bear God's image in many ways. And one way is that we will share his heavenly wisdom. I have no idea that we, let's see it this way. I do not know that we will ever have infinite wisdom. In fact, I kind of doubt it because we're not infinite creatures, are we? We're finite creatures. So I don't know in heaven that suddenly we're going to have infinite wisdom. But for all eternity, we will be learning wisdom from our infinite God. For all eternity, we will be acting in wise ways. The issue here was not, was wisdom a good or bad thing? The issue here was, how are you going to get it? Were you going to go to God for wisdom? Were you going to go to God to learn good from evil? Or were you going to go and try and do it on your own, in your own power, by your own strength? And as you know, Adam failed the test. He did not continue to trust God who had blessed him so greatly but rather tried to grasp for the only thing that God had kept from him. And according to the terms of the covenant, Adam chose death. Physical death would come for Adam, but the spiritual death was immediate. He lost paradise. He lost the very presence of God. He lost the promise of God's blessings. His own soul became wicked and opposed to God. God comes to hold him to account and he flees. In Mount Hermon, it didn't just happen to him. 
It happened to humanity. He represented man and his failure, his sin was our failure, our sin. We broke the covenant of works in our representative. We all died. This was the sin of Adam in which we all sinned. Now, having reminded ourselves of these things, go back to Romans 5 and look at Paul prove this point. And what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to prove it by bringing to us a piece of evidence that we might not have considered. In fact, he predicts, even as he's saying these things, that some people are going to have trouble with what he's just said. That's why we have that sudden interruption at the end of verse 12, right? He's speaking in verse 12, he's getting ready to make his point, and then he stops. And he sidetracks. And in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, he's trying to to bring us back to where he is so that he can make the point in verse 18. He goes on this, it's not chasing a rabbit, but he is trying to help us understand this point. And he knows there's going to be objections. He knows there's going to be questions. And that's why he takes some time to stop right at the end of verse 12 and to try and deal with them. He wants to prove his point so that we don't have any doubt in our minds that what he's saying is true. So look at verses 13 and 14 and see the evidence that he brings. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Wait a minute, Paul. You want us to believe that this death that has afflicted the human race is the result of Adam's sin. Could it not be different than that? Could it not be that every human being enters this world inherently good? And maybe it's when each of us sins in our own lifetimes that we die spiritually and later die physically? Paul, are you sure you haven't misunderstood? Couldn't it be that we all die for our own sins? God doesn't hold us accountable for, for Adam's sin. After all, Paul, you do admit that even after Adam, everybody kept sinning. So how do you know that they weren't dying for their own sins? How do you know that the spiritual death they experienced wasn't because of their own sins? That's the question Paul's answering in verses 13 and 14. He answers it in four propositions. We're going to fly through this. So pay attention, keep your brain on, see if you can catch what he's saying. Proposition one, it's right there in the verse. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Before Moses, before the giving of the Ten Commandments, people sinned. In fact, if you were with us in our study of Genesis, you have seen something of the depths of human depravity already on display in those centuries between Adam and Moses. So Paul is very willing to concede that people since Adam have always been sinners. But that does not mean that they brought death upon themselves by their own sins. Death was already upon them at birth. Why? Notice what Paul says next. Proposition two, sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, folks, we know this to be true. Can can Seth here, can can he pull me over for going 10 miles over the speed limit if there's no law against going 10 miles over the speed limit? Can I be held responsible and given a penalty for a crime 
if there's no law against what I did. So how is it that God could judge all of these people who lived between Adam and Moses when the law had not yet been given? Folks, the greatest outpouring of the judgment of God this world had ever seen before the cross was the flood of Noah in which God wiped out the entire human race except for eight people because of sin. So God brought judgment on sin. Humanity itself was all but wiped out. How could God judge all of these people for their sins if there was no law? How can there be sin without law? The inference Paul wants us to draw is obvious. There was a law. There was a law. The law was the law given to Adam in the garden. The covenant of works. Adam, if you obey, you will be blessed. Adam, if you disobey, you will die. All people are under that law that has been in place from the beginning of creation. It's the fundamental principle written into the hearts of every human being. Obey God and live. Disobey God and die. Now attached to that are these fundamental moral absolutes that are brought forth for us in the Ten Commandments but have been known in the consciences of humanity since Genesis 1. But Paul's point in verse 13 is to say sin did exist between Adam and Moses, but this sin was connected to Adam. The Mosaic law had not been given, but the covenant made with Adam in the beginning was still at play, and thus these sins were counted. But wait a minute, Paul. If that's true, you haven't made your point. For it could it not be that every person under this covenant made with Adam, obey and live, disobey and die, was still dying for their own sins. You haven't proved that we're all held guilty for Adam's sin. People could have still been dying for their own sins. Two more propositions. Verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. This is the centerpiece of Paul's argument. If you look at the people who lived between the time of Adam and the time of Moses, there were some who never sinned the way that Adam did. They never consciously, willingly violated God's covenant of works. They never chose to disobey God, and yet they still die. Who is he talking about? I think he's talking about infants. I think he's talking about those children who died before ever developing enough to even know that their inherent selfishness was a sin. I think he's talking about children who died in their mother's wombs, children who died in emphasis, in, in infancy. He may even be speaking here about those who were severely mentally handicapped and never had the capacity to grasp concepts of selfishness or pride. People who were even born in a vegetable-like state, they still died, but they never sinned the way Adam did. Why? 
Why did death reign over everyone, even those people? The only logical conclusion is that death was upon them because death was upon everybody, namely through Adam. Matthew Henry puts it this way. This is to be understood of infants who were never guilty of actual sin and yet died because Adam's sin was imputed to them. The reign of death seems especially to refer to those violent and extraordinary judgments which were long before Moses, the flood, the destruction of Sodom, both of which involved infants. It is a great proof of original sin that little children who were never guilty of any actual transgression are yet liable to very terrible diseases, to casualties, to deaths, which could by no means be reconciled with the justice and the righteousness of God if they were not chargeable with guilt. How could God allow little babies to die if they were not guilty? And in what way were they guilty? Paul says it is through Adam in the garden. Now that raises lots of questions. Lots of questions. If these babies were born dead in sin, guilty before God, under the wrath brought upon them by their federal head Adam, does this mean that little babies who die go to hell? Coming up on five years since me and Crystal lost a little baby. And in a couple of weeks, um, on a Sunday night, I'm going to try and devote the whole service to answering that question. What does the Bible say about the eternal fate of those who die in infancy. So I want to address that. We don't have time this morning, but it's going to be addressed. For now, see the logical point that Paul is making. Sin was in the world before Moses. How can God call something sin when there is no law? There was a law. The covenant God made with Adam. Death reigned over everyone, not just voluntary sinners. Here is evidence that in Adam's fall, We sinned all, that his death was our death. All right, are you with me, church? Do you understand Paul's point? Do you see how he he makes it? Let's close with his last proposition. Adam was a type of the one to come. In other words, there is a way in which Adam bringing death to humanity represented Jesus. How? Because Jesus was going to be the firstborn of the new creation. Adam, firstborn of old creation. Jesus, firstborn of new creation. And unlike the rest of humanity, Jesus was not born dead in sin. Jesus was not born guilty before God. God placed on Jesus a covenant of works, just like He had on Adam. God called Jesus to obey Him faithfully, even to the point of death. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus obeyed perfectly, even when it meant going to a cross. And just as Adam represented all humanity when he he died, Jesus represented all His people when He succeeded. Jesus is the second Adam. He accomplished perfect righteousness. Jesus accomplished perfect obedience. And He did so for His people. Yes, Adam's F in the garden is placed on our report card from birth. And we've added lots of our own Fs on top of His. But now because of the cross, 
All of those F's can be taken off. Jesus bore the punishment. Jesus paid the penalty. And because of His perfect life and obedience that He accomplished as our federal head, as our representative before God, His A's can now be given to us so that His victory was our victory. His righteousness is now our righteousness. It has been credited to our account if we are Christians. This is why this is such an important thing. This is why this is not a little issue of whether we inherited guilt from Adam. If you say, I reject that God can be just and credit Adam's guilt to me, then you must also reject that God can be just and credit Jesus' righteousness to you. The gospel and your salvation and heaven stands on this being true. That's why we must defend it. And that's why we must believe it. Dear friends, are you resting in Christ? Are you thankful for what He has done on your behalf? Do you understand how helpless you were and how Jesus did everything, absolutely everything necessary to make you right with God? These truths are meant to cause us in our hearts to run to Christ, to bow before Christ, to humble ourselves before Him and cling to Christ. Folks, let us look to His Word. Let us speak to Him in prayer. Let us be baptized in His name and be counted among His people. Christ is the second Adam and He's leading us to a second paradise. The question is, do you believe it? And do you trust Him? Because the way we have Jesus' righteousness made our righteousness, the way we as sinners can stand before God holy and perfect is only by resting, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will. Let's pray.